Please turn to Ephesians 6. We will be reading from verse 10 to 17, and we will mainly focus on the second part of verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. Please raise your hand if you would like a Bible. And on that particular Bible, it is on page 676. And please keep the Bible if it is your only Bible. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And... I'll be praying for us. Dear God, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here and worship. And I pray for all all the victims of the tragedies that happened this week and last week. I pray that you would comfort them and, and you would be there for them. And God, I also pray for um, the perpetrators. Because as you said, this battle is not against flesh and blood. These people are your people too, and I pray that you would lead them to you and lead them to repentance, and I ask that they may experience your love. I pray that you would speak through your word today, that it wouldn't be my words, but yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would like to answer three questions regarding the sword of the Spirit. First one, what is the sword of the Spirit? And then, how to use the sword. And lastly, why we can wield the sword of the Spirit. So, what is the sword of the Spirit? How do we use the sword of the Spirit? And why we can wield the sword of the Spirit. So first, what is the sword of the Spirit? Until now, we have been mainly equipped with defensive pieces of the armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. The Greek word sword here used is makaira. It's actually not a long sword that we may have imagined, but a short sword that a Roman soldier would use in a battle. The nature of the sword shows us that it is to be used against the enemy at a very close range. When we can see the whites of their eyes, we engage in a very desperate fight. Paul describes as, um, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against a spiritual enemy. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is both defensive and offensive. Defensively, 
We block blows such as temptations and accusations that the enemy may throw at us at a very close range. Offensively, we're not only to stand firm, but to withstand and plunge ahead. For example, the word of God is crucial in evangelism. I first accepted Jesus after reading a book called Dinner with a Perfect Stranger. It's a book about an atheist guy having dinner with Jesus Christ. It, of course, shared the gospel in the middle of it, but what really pierced my heart was when the author chose to incorporate Revelation 3.20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come, to, come into him and eat with him and he with me. At that moment, Jesus was no longer a distant historical figure who supposedly died for my sins, but a living being who has been pursuing me personally. Also, the offensive nature of a sword shows us that the spiritual warfare is not a siege where we surround ourselves with a wall and wait until Jesus comes back. But it's a very intense fight where we are told to wrestle against the enemy. Interestingly, it is the only offensive weapon that Paul describes in the text. Now, why aren't we given more than a sword? In the battlefield, the Roman soldiers had two weapons mainly, a spear and a sword. I think the fact that Paul chose only the sword of the spirit means that it is the only weapon we actually need to stand against the schemes of the devil and withstand in the evil days. And of course, we are holding the shield of faith with the other hand, so we can't possibly be holding two weapons. Now, the sword we have on our hand is not just any sword, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Two phrases I want to go over here, of the Spirit and the Word of God. So, of the Spirit and the Word of God. So, what does it mean by of the Spirit? First, it shows us the source of the sword. It is not inherently ours, nor do we earn it. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity. According to 2 Timothy 3.16-17, Paul speaks of the Word of God as, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is clear that the word of God, the sword of the spirit, is from God, and it equips us for every good work. Peter, another apostle of Jesus, corroborates this in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us that the Bible, the Word of God, is revealed and given to us by the Holy Spirit, God himself. And that is, in fact, what Christians believe. The Bible is verbally inspired by God through the words of human authors and holds the 
ultimate authority. The phrase of the Spirit tells us the source. Secondly, the phrase of the Spirit requires us to be in a relationship with the owner. It works like this in real life. People only let you borrow their stuff if you know them personally. If you borrow something from someone whom you don't know, it's called theft. And it's illegal in California under the Penal Code 484. I know this because I've been interning at the public defender's office. And we will cover this more, the relationship with God and the usage of our sword, in depth on the next section. Now, some of you may have been turned off when I talked about the authority of the Bible. And I understand you wouldn't believe what I will be saying about the Bible if you don't believe that the Bible is reliable and the ultimate truth. That's why I would like to attempt to clear up some misconceptions that we may have um, regarding the reliability of the Word of God. Obviously, I will only be scratching the surface because I'm limited in both time and knowledge. But if you have any comments or questions, please uh, talk to me after or Andrew Hoffman. Also, Gospel Academy and Exploring Christianity are great programs that go over how to approach and read the Bible. One view of the Bible that you may have is that the content is unreliable because it's been written too long after Jesus' death, maybe hundreds of years. This may have been fueled by Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code or news articles you may have read. However, I want to tell you that every book of the New Testament has been written in the same century that Jesus lived, which means there were eyewitnesses alive who were there to either refute or corroborate what they have seen and known about Jesus. And they would have said something about it if, if the apostles who wrote the New Testament said something wrong about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6-7, Paul talks about how resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 men. And of course, the early church had many enemies who, uh, who would not have hesitated to refute Paul for writing this if it had been false. However, we still have more than 6,000 copies of the New Testament from the second century that are 99.5% accurate when, com when compared to the copies we have today. And for more information, I recommend reading Tim Keller's New York Times bestseller, the Reason for God, which goes over it in more detail. Another view is that the books of the Bible have been politically arranged by Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire to unite the empire. Dan Brown goes over this in his fiction, The Da Vinci Code, that some forgotten gospels proclaim that Jesus was married to Mary. But Constantine eliminated all those books and for the sake of unity. I would argue, however, the books of the New Testament were established more than a century before Constantine was even born. In AD 108, Ignatius of Antioch, a disciple of John, Apostle John, 
quotes many books from the New Testament and makes a distinction between his writing and the writings by the New Testament authors. By AD 170 to 200, the Muratorian Canon was established, which lists every book in the current New Testament, except for Peter, James, and Hebrews. And let's compare these dates to the First Council of Nicaea, where they supposedly gathered to pick out the books for the New Testament, AD 325. These dates do not align. A cynical person would even say that it's more probable that Constantine used Christianity because it was already established, not the other way around. The authority of the Bible is very difficult to swallow for a lot of us, even Christians. I want to encourage you that there are many resources out there. And one of the best places to start is the Bible itself. As you open it, ask and pray that God would speak through Scripture. Lastly, in 2014, Professor Karen King of Harvard University published a paper regarding a papyrus fragment found, possibly from the 6th through the 9th century, that said Jesus said to them, my wife. After further analysis, however, the fragment was proven unreliable. As of last week, the professor herself stated that she believes that the fragment is more likely a modern forgery than an ancient fragment. In conclusion, learning from history of Christianity from the Da Vinci Code is like taking dating advice from the Twilight series. Now that we know a little about the sword of the spirit, let's go over how to use the sword of the spirit. In order to learn how to use the sword, I think it's best to look at the sword master himself, Jesus. Right after Jesus' baptism in Matthew 4, he was led by the spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Yes, even Jesus, the Son of God, was attacked by Satan. I think it is crucial to know that we also can't avoid the spiritual warfare at hand. Satan takes scripture out of context to tempt Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God. And each time, Jesus counters saying, as it is written, and quotes from scripture. And eventually, Satan flees. Two things I want to point out here. First, notice that Jesus directly went to the Bible when he was attacked, not his miracles, not his ministry. He could have easily proven that he is the Son of God by turning a stone into bread. He did not rely on his own ability nor status. And now I want to ask us, when we are put in difficult circumstances where we question our identity in Jesus, where do we first run to? How many of us run to our jobs by working more hours? What about our family? Maybe alcohol? Or maybe your political agenda to solve the problems of the world? These things are great things, but they will not protect you when your core identity is at stake. I pray 
that we all seek the word of God first when we are attacked by the enemy because that's the only identity that cannot be taken away from us. Listen to what God says about you, not what your job says, not what your friends say, not what your resume says. This does not mean that we need to memorize the whole Bible, but really know what it, is, what it says about God and our relationship to God. For example, as Andrew Hoffman reminded us in his previous sermons, we need to know that we are chosen and beloved by God the Father, adopted through Jesus and redeemed by his blood and sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's from Ephesians 1. Do you really know that in your hearts? You may also have noticed that both Jesus and Satan use words from Scripture. In the text, Satan quotes from Psalm 91, 11, and 12, when he says, that's in Matthew 4, 6 through 8, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus effectively argues, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, how come Satan wasn't able to win if, even though, he too used the Bible? First, Satan took Psalm 91, 11 through 12 out of context. Psalm 91, 11 through 12 was written to show that God is able to save, able to help when one is in danger. Satan here used it to provoke Jesus to use his power to prove that he is the Son of God. But Jesus knew that already. A great example of taking the Bible out of context is when I used to argue with Andrew Hoffman whether cats go to heaven. Um, background information is that Andrew is highly allergic to cats and he does not like them at all. <laughs> I've often tried to justify that the cats do go to heaven because according to the Bible, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And lions are from the cat family. But of course, when you consider the context, the Lion of Judah tells us the majesty and power of Jesus, not the destination of dead cats. This is why it is crucial to be studying the Bible in a gospel-centered community. We can do it in a big group like this, or in a smaller setting, or in a Bible study. It will definitely help you to use the Bible truthfully, and also the sword of the Spirit more effectively, like Jesus. Additionally, Jesus had a relationship with the Spirit of God, and Satan didn't. In Matthew 4.1, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness and to be tempted by the devil. It is very clear that, the, that Jesus was with the Spirit together. They were together in the wilderness when Satan came to attack him. As I've mentioned before, that's what the sword of the Spirit means. It requires a relationship. Many people can quote the Bible out of context to fit their own agenda, the Pharisees and Satan did it, 
The Pharisees used the word of God, the law of God, to benefit their purses. Jesus used the word of God to accomplish God's agenda because Jesus selflessly loved God. To summarize, in order to use the sword of the Spirit, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have to be in a relationship with God. Now the question is, how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? What allowed us, a rebellious, sinful people, to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God? And this leads to my last point, why we can wield the sword of the Spirit. As stated in Ephesians 1, the order is that we are chosen first, beloved, adopted, redeemed, and sealed children of God. Before we are sealed by the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our sonship and daughtership, we had to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And how did that come about? My point is this. We can arm ourselves with the whole armor of God because on the cross, Jesus disarmed himself. We can arm ourselves with the whole armor of God because on the cross, Jesus disarmed himself. It means Jesus refused to use his swords, physical and spiritual, to become completely defenseless on the cross where he shed his blood for our sins. On the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, one of his disciples pulled out a sword in defense. At that moment, which is in Matthew 26, 52 through 54, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled? That it must be so. He did not take up the sword, the means of the world, to defend himself, and he also did not use his own words to defend himself so that the scripture could be fulfilled. As Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed, and this is Jesus, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is someone who obeyed the word of God, even if it meant giving up his own words and ultimately his life, so that we can be in a relationship with him. And because he resurrected, we can be sure that we have a relationship with the living God. What does that mean for us? It means we also can trust the Bible. If Jesus obediently chose death to fulfill the scripture and rose from the grave, which is also in the scripture, then we can also trust the scripture with our lives. In life, you will be spiritually attacked. Your identity will be shaken. And at times, you may feel worthless. So firmly take the sword of the Spirit and let the Word of God 
speak for you. And I'm going to pray for us. Dear God, thank you so much for your word and how powerful and true it is and what it says about you and what it says about our relationship with you and what it says about us. And God, thank you for dying on the cross and that because of that, we are your children. I pray that as we walk out today that you would fill us with this immense desire for your word and that this desire would not just be temporal as the fireworks of tomorrow, but it would be true and always constant in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.